Friends, today we continue with our sermon series, A Community You Can Call Home. And today I want to speak about one key aspect of Christian worship, the meaning of Christian baptism, according to the Apostle Paul. Now, if someone asked you about the meaning of your own baptism, how would you answer? In his letter to the church at Rome, Paul sustains a reasoned theological argument. First, he confronts his readers with the total nature of the human crisis that we all face, the crisis of sin. Second, he shares the good news of God's comprehensive answer to that crisis in the person of Christ Jesus, what theologian Karl Barth calls total help for total need. And third, Paul confronts us with the transformative nature of the response God's redemption in Christ calls forth from each of us. Our text today is the beginning of that third section about our response to Christ and teaches us much about Christian baptism. Now, to put today's passage in context, Paul concludes the previous chapter, chapter 5 of Romans, on a very high note with these words. For just as by one man's disobedience, meaning Adam, the many were made sinners, so by one man's obedience, meaning Christ, the many will be made righteous. But law came in with the result that the trespass multiplied. But where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. <clears throat> wow. Where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. Paul pictures the grace of God in Christ as a giant tsunami, a giant tidal wave sweeping away all our sin. Now, one possible response to that good news is to cheapen God's abundant grace, which comes to us as a result of the costly suffering and death of Jesus. That abundant grace might lead some to think, well, grace is good. Since we get more grace when we sin, let's just keep on sinning. It means taking God's grace for granted and making no effort to grow in what Paul calls the obedience of faith or to repent of our sin. Now, Christians may be tempted at times to slip from a celebration of grace to an abuse of grace, to be complacent about our sin, because after all, God is gracious and will forgive. In practice, we may sometimes echo the view of W.H. Auden, who said, I like committing crimes. God likes forgiving them. Really, the world is admirably arranged. Paul states the question, what are we to say then? Should we continue in sin in order that grace may abound? How does Paul answer that question? Let's find out as Christopher Huber reads for us. I'll be reading from Romans chapter 6, verses 1 through 13. And this is from the New Revised Standard Version. What then are we to say? Should we continue in sin in order that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin go on living in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Therefore, we have been buried with him by baptism into death, so that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in the newness of life. 
For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we will certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body of sin might be destroyed. And we might no longer be enslaved to sin. For whoever has died is free from sin. But if we died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. The death he died, he died to sin once and for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you must also consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, do not let sin exercise dominion in your mortal bodies to make you obey their passions. No longer present your members to sin as instruments of wickedness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and present your members to God as his instruments of righteousness. The word of the Lord. As you just heard in our text, Paul responds emphatically to the question about whether we should continue in sin in order that grace may abound. He says, by no means. In verse 3, Paul says that those who have been baptized were baptized into Christ Jesus. That is, in baptism, friends, we identify with, we unite ourselves with Christ. Baptism is our open acknowledgement and acceptance that Jesus' death and resurrection happened for us on our behalf as an act of God's grace. By the sign of baptism, we gratefully respond to God's grace in Christ with the yes of faith. By baptism, we confess we want to belong to Christ, to become his followers, his servants in the world. Baptism is the way we appropriate the benefits of Christ's death as a sign of our repentance and trust in Christ along with our desire to wash away our sin and for God to grant us the gift of the Holy Spirit. Now first, this has two steps of identifying with Christ. First, Paul explains, how can we who died to sin go on living in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Therefore, we've been buried with him by baptism into death. He says further in verses 6 and 7, we know that our old self, that is our pre-Christian sinful self, was crucified with him so that the body of sin might be destroyed and we might no longer be enslaved to sin. So Paul is saying we enter into Christ's death by faith as a death Christ embraced on our behalf, which really means our death as well. We surrender our old sinful life to this death, letting our old self be buried with Christ. Dying to our old sinful self, God saves us and separates us from our sin, and God frees us from sin's power in the Holy Spirit. God's acquittal means our burden of guilt has been lifted through no action of our own, but by God's saving and gracious act in Christ. Remember on Pentecost Sunday, at the end of his sermon, the Apostle Peter invited people to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ 
and promised as a result their sins would be forgiven, they would receive the Holy Spirit. However, his first command was that the people repent, that is, change the direction of their lives, moving away from sin and toward God in Christ. Now, dying with Christ is the first of two ingredients in baptism, according to Paul. Second, Paul promises in verses 4 and 5, Therefore, we who have been buried with him by baptism into death. I'm sorry. Therefore, we have been buried with him, with Christ, by baptism into death, so that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we will certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. Notice the, the different tenses Paul uses. He uses the past tense to describe our identification with Jesus in his death. But he uses the future tense to describe our union with Jesus in his resurrection. In other words, though we become new people when we repent, and come to faith in Christ and are baptized to express those realities, we have not yet been resurrected and given new life in all its fullness. We have, been, we have not been given our new resurrection bodies, for example. The age of salvation has arrived, and we've been given a new identity in Christ. At the same time, we still await the general resurrection at the end of time, when our new life in Christ will be fully manifest. So that means today, friends, we are to see ourselves first as saints in Christ, those given a new birth by baptism and the Holy Spirit. And yet on this side of resurrection, even though Christ has already redeemed us, we have a secondary identity as sinners. My mentor Earl Palmer calls this the grand tension. It means that we are not yet a finished product. I think we all know that. Martin Luther wrote, the saints, at the same time as they are righteous, are also sinners. They are like the sick under the care of a physician. They are sick in fact, but healthy in hope, and in the fact that they are beginning to be healthy. Paul concludes this section in verses 11 to 13 with this admonition. So you must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ. Therefore, do not let sin exercise dominion in your mortal bodies to make you obey their passions. No longer present your members, which means your mouth, your mind, your arms and legs, to sin as instruments of wickedness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and present your members to God as instruments of righteousness. Paul is already emphasize that as a result of sin and dying with Christ, we are freed from our enslavement to sin. And now as those who have received Christ and the Holy Spirit, we have a new and greater freedom than ever before to decide for the will of God in our lives. The real question for all of us is, how will we use this freedom, this new freedom, this new power in the Holy Spirit? Englishman John Newton, who lived from July 24th, 1725, to December 21st, 1807, is best known today as the writer of the famous hymn, Amazing Grace. At age 11, Newton first went to sea with his father, a ship's captain, 
and after his father retired, Newton continued as a sailor and was eventually pressed into naval service by the Royal Navy. Aboard the HMS Harwich, he attempted to desert and was punished in front of the entire crew, receiving a flogging of 12 lashes and was reduced to the rank of a common seaman. Recovering from that disgrace, he transferred to the Pegasus, a slave ship bound for West Africa. He was a continual problem for the crew of the Pegasus during that journey, and so they left him in West Africa with Amos Clow, a slave dealer who gave Newton to his wife, Princess Pei, an African duchess. Newton was abused and mistreated by her along with her other slaves. It was this period that Newton later recalled that he was once an infidel and libertine, a servant of slaves in West Africa. Early in 1748, Newton was rescued from being a slave by a sea captain, a friend of his father, and then sailed back to England aboard the merchant ship Greyhound. The ship encountered a terrible storm off the coast of Ireland and almost sank. Newton awoke in the middle of the night and called out to God as the ship filled with water and things looked hopeless. It was this experience Newton acknowledged as the starting point of his conversion to Christianity. From that time, Newton avoided profanity, gambling, and drinking. However, he did not abandon his work in the slave trade. He acknowledged his true conversion took place about a year later in 1749 when he served as first mate aboard the slave ship Brownlow, bound for the West Indies via the coast of Guinea. Sick with fever during the voyage, he professed his full faith in Christ and asked God to take control of his life. And yet Newton did not renounce the slave trade for another five years in the year 1754. Granted, after trusting in Christ, he reportedly treated the slaves under his command humanely, and yet he made three additional voyages between 1750 and 1754 as captain of two slave ships, the Duke of Argyle and then the African. After finally retiring from the sea, Newton became a lay minister and finally a priest in the Church of England. In 1788, 34 years after he retired from the slave trade, Newton published a forceful pamphlet, Thoughts Upon the Slave Trade, in which he described the horrific conditions of slave ships during the Middle Passage and apologized for being an, <clears throat> quote, active instrument in a business at which my heart now shudders. Newton became an ally of Member of Parliament William Wilberforce, also an evangelical Christian, and leader of the campaign in Parliament to abolish the slave trade, the campaign in which Wilberforce eventually succeeded. What John Newton's life illustrates is that we do not always consider ourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ, even after coming to faith and being baptized. However humanely Newton treated the slaves he transported after becoming a Christian, he continued to participate in that industry in which blacks were treated not as persons made in the image of God, which of course is biblical teaching, but as subhuman pieces of property. That was the thinking of that day, and it took a while for that scriptural truth to really sink in and be accepted by John Newton fully. 
The good news is that in time, Newton applied the liberating grace and scriptural guidance he received in Christ to his work life and rightfully left the evil and dehumanizing slave trade for good and campaigned for its abolition. Friends, the choice Paul presents to us today in our text is whether or not we see ourselves as new people in Christ who've died to sin but are alive to God in Christ. It's whether we present our members to sin as instruments of wickedness or to God as instruments of righteousness. We have been saved by grace through Jesus' redeeming death and glorious resurrection and have responded with repentance and faith and undergone baptism and received the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit. And as a result, God's Spirit gives us new power to make good choices, new freedom to obey God's will for us in Christ. Are we living into that new identity? Let us pray. Spirit of God is baptized followers of Jesus. Fill us that we may live out our new identity as those who have died to sin in Christ. Work within us that we may joyfully present our lives not to sin as instruments of wickedness, but to you, O God, as instruments of righteousness. Through Christ the Lord we pray. Amen.